0: Hi, I'm Donna O'Toole, and you're listening to my exclusive Winning Awards podcast. Over the years, I've had the pleasure of supporting entrepreneurs, business leaders, and teams to win the most prestigious awards in the world. I've seen firsthand how receiving awards and recognition has motivated teams, solved problems, supercharged brands, and raised profiles, helping businesses to grow and do even more good things for their employees, their industry, and their community. In this podcast, I'll be sharing valuable awards insights, tips and inspirational stories to make sure that you get the recognition that you deserve so that you can go on and achieve your dreams so what are you waiting for it's time to start winning hello and welcome to this next episode of the winning awards podcast today i have with me dave henson mbe Dave is a highly successful para-sport athlete who took up athletics following a life-changing incident while serving in Afghanistan almost exactly 10 years ago. Having stepped on a hidden landmine, the impact of the blast led to the amputation of the lower half of both of his legs. Following an extensive rehabilitation program, he began walking with the aid of prosthetic legs several months later. After his departure from the army, Dave was determined to make the most from his new life and has since gone on to represent Great Britain at numerous global events, winning medals at the 2016 Paralympics in Rio, the 2017 IPC World Championships in London, and the 2016 IPC European Championships. Then at the inaugural Invictus Games in 2012, Dave was chosen to be the British team captain, and he competed in three events – winning gold in the 200 metres. Three years later, he was the proud flag bearer for Team GB at the IPC European Championships. Dave's achievements have led him to be awarded the MBE, en route to becoming one of our most recognisable and popular para-sport athletes. Today, he works for Imperial College London, where his role involves biomedical biomechanical analysis to help in the development of prosthetic limbs, a cause which is, of course, very close to his heart. So welcome, Dave, and thank you so much for being with us here today.
1: Thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Great. Okay. So your story, Dave, we've, you know, I've had the pleasure of talking to you before. And so I've heard your story. So I want you to take our audience through it today because it's so inspirational and it really highlights what can be achieved in the face of adversity after nearly essentially losing your life for your country. So please, can you just talk us through your kind of how this began, your military career and how you ended up serving for the Royal Engineers? Was it always an ambition of yours to join the forces?
1: Uh, Yes, I I guess in a way it was always always an ambition, although um, I actually first applied to join the Navy as opposed to the Army. Uh, But that was mostly based on the fact that my dad was... was working on uh, some of the technology that goes into into warships at the time. So I just sort oh, of wow. followed down that route. Um, yeah, I, I went through the interview process and they uh, they said I wasn't ready yet, so I need to come back later. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, probably since I was about 15, 16, uh, when we had the careers days at school, um, I felt that this was a path I wanted to take, a route that I wanted to go down. Um, and that was really solidified as I went through university. Um, yeah. So I went to, to university up in Hertfordshire to study mechanical engineering, and from then on, really, the ambitions for, for the army specifically um, started to really, uh, uh, really come to a head. And I ended up going through the application process to become an officer in the army uh, during my second year of university. And I was fortunate enough to spend the entirety of my, my third year of a four year degree in the army. Um, so yeah. I sort of got um, a university placement um Which were were really quite rare, so I got I got paid to go and and, and travel the world essentially for for a year as a student with very little real responsibility.
0: Amazing.
1: Yeah, it was a really fantastic opportunity, and then I I went back to university and finished my degree, and then uh, went through the the full training process uh, another year in the Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst, and then commissioning into into the Royal Engineers at the end of two thousand and
0: eight. Yeah. Wow. So how long was it between how long were you in the army before you had uh, the accident?
1: Uh, I had managed a grand three and a bit years wow. um, from yeah so uh, the first time I joined was 2005 to 2006 and then I finished the degree and then started properly for uh, you know the proper career route in 2008 January so yeah January 2008 through to February 2011 when I got blown up so not, not really very long at all.
0: Goodness me. What a shocker. So, but before your accident, I remember you saying that you weren't particularly sporty or interested in physical fitness. And now it's kind of ironic then that after such a big impact, you decided it was time to get sporty now. So obviously, take us through the journey. It'd be, you know, if you're comfortable to talk about sort of what happened, and then how that sort of changed your attitude towards sport, then coming out of the army.
1: Yeah, so um, sport itself is quite a, a, a big part of military life, but definitely uh, more on, on the amateur level. Um, so usually once a week, you'll get allocated time in your in your regimental diary, as it were, to go and, um, go and take part in sport. Um, I was the, the swimming officer, or one of the swimming officers at my regiment, uh, and, and swimming was something that I'd done quite a lot when I, I was younger. But in terms of sporting ambitions, I, I, I had none. I, I was well aware that I had, uh, you know, two left hands, as it were. I was not particularly coordinated and, all of those kind of things. I, I did like the physical fitness, and it's one of the things that, which attracted me to the armed forces in the first place. But yeah, sporting-wise, I, I was not particularly good at all. Um, but as as I went through, you know, the, the, the short career that I did have, um, things obviously changed as a result of the incident. So I deployed to Afghanistan in in October in 2010 to go and do um, an operational tour uh, with the Royal Engineers, uh, and my specific role was uh, was was called a a Royal Engineer Search Advisor so I was in charge of a, a small team of soldiers and it was our job to go out and, and look for improvised explosive devices that had been hidden in the ground you know it was the, uh, the the Taliban's weapon of choice really in their their battle against the the international coalition that was in Afghanistan at the time these are sort of small uh, or large indiscriminatory explosive devices which mm-hmm. get buried in Walls, floors, roadways—you know, wherever uh, a soldier or a vehicle is likely to travel—they've just booby-trap it with these um, these quite nasty explosive devices—and they're really causing quite a lot of damage to our to our forces at the time. So we had a, a bit of an uplift uh, in search capability, and I was part of that uplift. Too. Mm. Um they, they started to send a lot more people out in this specialist role uh, to go out and look for improvised explosive devices. It, it was high-risk role. Um, <clears throat> And, and it cost me my legs in, in February 2011. Do you
0: think the risk when you were, when you took that on, do you think the risk of such an impact really hits home with you when you take on that type of a role?
1: Um, yeah, it, it did for me at the time. I mean, I was still young enough to, to not really pay too much notice to the risk factor. You know, I was still very much, it's never going to happen to me, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. But um, as I went through my training for this role, uh you know a, f- a few of my friends were, were injured or, or killed in the process and um, um, so it does really bring it home quite quite quickly so we were we were very aware of the risks certainly within our first week in afghanistan and from our, our wider unit we'd had uh one death and i think it was uh, three injuries involving one blindness and two, two people with amputations. So, you know, that was a, a week of arriving. Uh, so it, it, it was incredibly risky. And we, we were well aware of that. Uh, it required some significant management on the ground. But.
0: And um, I remember you saying when you had the accident um, that the, how quickly you were looked after afterwards and the difference that that made.
1: Yeah, it was astonishing. I mean, we. We, as in the British forces, are taking quite a lot of uh, casualties in, in Afghanistan. And it's an unfortunate reality of war in that uh, as wars progress, you, your medical um, capability improves, you know, almost month on month. As you start to learn the lessons, I identify what what, what you can do to keep people alive. Um, so when I lost my legs, I had tourniquets applied to, to my legs within, you know, literally one or two minutes um, by my team to stop any any excess bleeding out uh, the helicopter which is essentially a flying ambulance uh, complete with anaesthetist to prep you for surgery that had landed uh, 20 minutes after I got blown up and within 37 minutes I was on the operating table which is just unheard of so all of those things all of those interventions were in that that crucial golden hour for life saving so actually my chances of not only survival but increased quality of life as a result were, were really quite high
0: Amazing it can be good goosebumps you're talking about that again so goodness you've been through so much and then so take, take us on the journey then what happened after that because there must have been an, an awful lot for you to I mean you know obviously wonderful that they were able to save your life but obviously the tragedy was that you had to lose part of your legs so take us through that journey and, and the acceptance for you and then how you you know you've used that um since then
1: So I'd say the acceptance side of it was was definitely more long term than short term Mm. uh, and probably didn't come until nearly a year after I'd lost my legs. But I I think that's really to be expected. Um, So after I'd got to the hospital in Afghanistan, I spent about 36 hours in hospital there. Um, So I was actually quite fortunate because of the interventions which had been applied to me. Um, My injuries, whilst quite um, substantial, were fairly well isolated to one place. so it was a you know a relatively clean amputation, as it were. I didn't have any pelvic injuries, no internal injuries, no head injuries. Uh, so as a result, I didn't need to get put into a coma. Um, mm. So I, I was awake in the field hospital in Afghanistan. I got to see um, my soldiers before I was flown back to the UK. I got to actually see quite a few colleagues and friends who were out in Afghanistan at the same time, which was really quite um, refreshing. Um, I remember I got told off. I got told off several times for this, but I got told off in... Um, uh, in the field hospital in Afghanistan, because my commanding officer took me on my my, my hospital bed outside the field hospital uh, for a quick cigarette in the in the back of the hospital, and apparently that's not allowed. Uh, either way, my um my commanding officer, when I was back in the UK, did the same thing at the hospital in Birmingham, and and it's now part of the uh, the policy, a standard operating procedures that patients are not to be wheeled out of the hospital and intensive care beds for cigarettes. Now uh, you can thank me for that one, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, well, I was
0: if you just.
1: You can't have better. one then. I don't know when you can, frankly. Yeah, yeah, we just—I uh, needed to get out of there. I, I hated being out. No one likes being in hospital, but uh, no. I just needed to move about. Um, so I was—I was in intensive care for about a week back in the UK, and then four weeks on the hospital ward, which was probably one of the more enjoyable times uh, of my life. You know, it's a strange thing, um, but on the ward, you've got you. You know, three other people in your room you've never met before mm. uh, but are in very similar situations and you form these incredibly close unique bonds and it that's despite the fact that I was an officer and the, the rest of the guys in my in my bay were all soldiers um mm. from, from a different unit you know they weren't engineers or anything um but we we did form an incredibly close relationship but that continues now to this oh, day
0: That's
1: really good. yeah so we, we went from there so from from those five weeks in hospital in Birmingham it was sort of on with the rehab. I had about two weeks at home on leave between leaving hospital and starting at the rehabilitation centre, the military's rehab centre. And most of that two weeks was just spent in the gym with my brother, just trying to build up some strength and and push forward. Um, And yeah, then it was into, into rehab, which... Uh, took about three years uh, you know of in and out um, your sort of four to six week block periods where you're just learning to do everything again from learning to use a wheelchair properly to you're learning to cook and clean and then learning to walk and actually I I think that's probably where the the sporting stuff came from because you know just as in normal military life sport forms a core part of your rehab as well Mm -hmm. so at the end of most days they would allocate time to play sport and whether that's uh, wheelchair or, or you know perhaps more um, you know, non adapted sports like swimming um, mm-hmm. you, you, you just do it on a day-to-day basis um, so that became normal and it was a way of uh, psychologically and physically rehabilitating you and the people around you by allowing you to focus on something else other than your physical condition because mm-hmm. really when you're playing sport you're just playing sport and it doesn't matter uh, yeah. what sort of state you're in you're just there competing you know
0: yeah, fantastic. All those great things like endorphins and, um, yeah, a distraction and, and focusing on something new must be, I can imagine that would be hugely important. So you then moved on and progressed in, well, a short space of time to becoming an international para-sport athlete. And you've got global recognition for this performance of loads of medals and, um, and you've been to the Paralymp 2016 Paralympics and the world championships that must have been huge what was the what was the experience like what was the highlights for you uh,
1: the the experience of that was incredible so I sort of uh I fell into athletics um, accidentally I suppose more than anything uh, so I sort of made it a bit of a, a personal ambition that I would pass the uh the run component of the army's fitness test before I was uh, medically discharged from the services um, more just to prove that I, I still had, a, you know, the, the the fitness that I went in with. So uh, mm. I became quite good at running on the running blades and passed this fitness test. Um, and then more or less at about exactly the same time, the Invictus Games for, for London 2014 were were announced. And because I'd become quite good at running, I decided to enter into the, into the, the athletics competition at those games. And the success at those London Invictus Games led on to uh, going on to a, 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 you know, a Paralympics GB, a British Athletics program as a as a talented athlete, which then led you know in, in less than less than a year to the 2015 World Championships, and then the, the the 2016 European Championships, and then the Paralympic Games. So it just all sort of happened so quickly. I didn't really have time. You know, when it was happening to take everything in because as soon as one competition finished it was on to preparation for the next. Yeah. You know, I'd give, given myself this uh, 24-month period to turn myself around from an amateur to someone who was going to compete at, at the Paralympics so you know I hardly had any downtime in that period it was all focused on on, on pushing for the Paralympics but you know when you when the Paralympics had, had finished you know when that race in Rio was over it's then time to, to turn around and, and look at you know the thousands of people in the crowds my mum and dad were there and just to uh, enjoy everything that had happened it was one of life's really surreal and actually quite defining moments for me
0: yeah yeah fantastic oh, I can't I can't imagine it must have been incredible so um then you were in in 2014 wasn't it you were awarded the MBE so that must have been a really proud moment for you and for your family. So tell us about that. How did that happen and and how did that feel?
1: Yeah, the MBE was um was a complete shock, really. I got a phone call one day from uh my boss. I was I was, you know, I was still just about in the military when the when I was awarded the MBE. Um so yeah. Yeah, was I still in? Yeah, I think I was just about still in. So I got a phone call from my boss and uh He's saying, uh, "Dave, I've got some great news. He's just been awarded the MB, and I think I told him to f off because I didn't quite believe that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it didn't go down too well. <laughs> yes, yeah, so thankfully that they still decided, decided to give it to me. Um, but yeah, it, it was that was another incredibly surreal moment. I, I had no idea that I'd even been nominated, let alone any anything yeah. else." Um, but yeah, it was it was a, a military MBE, so you, you can get sort yeah. of different different versions of the MBE. You get the military ones and the, the civilian ones. Um, so you know the, the citation is always rather general, so it's for services to the to the military. Mm-hmm. Um, but my boss had told me that it's because of uh, the example which I provided during my rehabilitation. I you know I'd been back to work for a bit and I'd helped some other soldiers get get through some of their their difficulties and get over some of their injuries and. Yeah, so it just sort of came as a bit of a shock. I certainly don't think I've done anything different to to anyone else. It's just that someone could be bothered to write me up for the for the uh, award. I think.
0: Yeah, but having you know having a positive role model for a lot of people and and someone to help them get through their own injuries or issues, you know, w- would be hugely important. And that's what these awards are there for: is to recognise the people going above and beyond, you know, the call of duty to to help other people. And that's what you've done, Dave. You? So whether you like it or not, the Queen thinks <laughs> so. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that was a special day, getting that from the Queen. It was great. How did you,
0: did you go to Buckingham Palace?
1: Yeah, I went to Buckingham Palace, and actually, uh, even though I've been awarded uh, the MV a few months before, uh, I went to, to Buckingham Palace in November, so it was just after the very first Invictus Games, so mm. there's quite a bit of buzz about it, and I, mm. I you know, actually ended up being to the Queen's uh, grandson, which was quite, quite nice, and uh, the success <laughs> of the Invictus Games, which was great.
0: I'm sure. And how much involvement did you have with Harry in the Invictus Games?
1: Um, the first one so the, for the first games my role was um, was more as, a, as an advisor than anything else obviously mm. I, I took on the captaincy of the, the, the UK team um, when the game's time came around but you know when we were going through the planning process from about September, th- 13, all the way through to the games themselves in, in September 14, um, there were a group of us who uh, acted as uh, sort of a sounding board to make sure that the games were shaped in the way that was most appropriate for uh, for the competitors who were due to take part. And that included um, speaking about your experiences to, to sponsors or potential sponsors to make sure that, that the games had the necessary funding to go ahead. It was really quite exciting, actually, just a year of busyness and, and engagement and experience of things which I had zero experience of before.
0: Yeah. Amazing. Isn't it funny, though, when these things come about like the Invictus Games and they've never when they haven't you know, been a regular um, thing before that you can't imagine them they're not happening afterwards because they bring so much positivity to so many people?
1: Yeah, I know. Um, sort of as soon as they were launched, they felt like they'd been. They've been around for ages, mm. and I think that's testament to the way that the games were were organised and delivered in that first year, in that they, when they were delivered, they felt like they were already an established yeah. competition. Yeah,
0: no, it's fantastic. So um, what's going to keep you driving forward then? You, you've, what, What's your next plan?
1: Um, so the next plan, so this was uh, was and is now in action, was Project 2020, although 2020 is the year which is actually going to get written off most, well, <laughs> most of yeah. the books, I think, so, <laughs> People like to forget about it, but um, yeah. So I'd always had a had a plan to. to- finish my PhD and and go a bit more into into the development of prosthetic devices. So, you know, all the way back in 2011, when I was just learning how to walk, uh, I was really quite shocked about how rudimentary prosthetic technology was considering we're in, you know, this 21st century of of, Mars landings and robotics and that kind of stuff. So I I just felt that with the engineering background that I did have and the experience as an amputee, I could add um, some significant value into this space. Uh, So I moved away from athletics at the end of 2018, um, finished my PhD and I, I started uh, my employment, my, my sort of second career, I guess, or third career. I don't know how many we're on now at, mm-hmm. in, at Imperial College in London, where I head up the strategic development of our prosthetic program. So we have a focus on um, developing countries. So you know, as, as bad as my, uh, as I felt that my prosthetics were, or as backwards as I felt that my prosthetics were, uh, in in many parts of uh, the developing world you simply don't have access to mm-hmm. prosthetics full stop you know and, and if you do they're generally unsuited for, for what you need them to do so we've had a, a research program going on at imperial college for a few years which is all about trying to equalize that that delivery of healthcare in this particular space um and yeah and so i head up for strategic development that's incredibly fulfilling but yeah last year we were supposed to be out in rwanda in cambodia and sri lanka and tanzania mm-hmm. and just none of that's happened but has enabled us to to build these relationships from a distance which uh whilst perhaps not quite so close uh, have allowed them to be a bit more broad so Mm. progressing
0: so hopefully fingers crossed maybe later this year (laughs) everyone's just crossing their fingers aren't they so it's been such a tough year the last of or more than a year really um for a lot of people around the world and from a mental health perspective it's been really challenging so obviously for you, for someone who's had to come across some really difficult challenges and you've managed to overcome those and or come through those with huge success, what would you say to anyone whose life's been kind of turned upside down maybe by the pandemic or by, by anything really about that sort of positive mental attitude? I know we were talking before and you were telling me about some research about actually survivors um, of... Um, you know, significant accidents like yours, and and actually how their positivity was really helping them to get through. So, it'd be interesting to hear your your take on that, and any advice you can give our our um, audience.
1: Yeah, the, the positivity one was was strange. It's part of a, a study which I'm involved in, both both as a, a as a research subject and a, as part of the advisory group, which helps to steer it. Um, in the research on our on our military amputees, so guys who would come out of combat with significant limb amputations, their um, their sort of anxiety levels, depression levels uh, were, you know, were lower than the general population and certainly lower than their, their non-injured counterparts. So what you see in people where they've had um, these really quite catastrophic injuries is that where they've, they've come through them, and come out the other side, uh, their outlook on life generally looks a whole lot more positive. The reasons why, I don't know. Um, I certainly feel like I'm quite a positive person, Um, and my personal perspective on it is that uh, certainly in the job roles that, that I was in and the roles in which a lot of people were in in Afghanistan, it was an incredibly dangerous situation. It was an incredibly dangerous country. You know, The, the war was, whilst quite small, was incredibly violent. Uh, and for an awful lot of soldiers, the, the the fear was not coming back at all. And the fact that we managed to come back, you know, minus a, a couple of feet was actually a, a, a real positive thing as opposed to a negative thing. You know, it's easy to look at, at me in the physical condition in which I find myself and think that, oh, you know, poor Dave, he's got no legs, but actually the alternative was that I was going to come home in a body bag. Mm. So, you know, I, I came home uh, alive and I've, I've learned to thrive since my injury. Um, so I really do look at that incident as a, as, a, as a positive event as opposed to a negative event. And I think that's really quite common across the rest of our, our, our combat injury cohort. You know, it's, it's a positive thing as opposed to a negative thing. Um, and then, yeah, it's, it's really in terms of the day-to-day outlook on how to maintain positivity i always try and make sure that i have something that's just for me so you know whether you're in employment or you work for yourself or 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 whatever um, I think it's incredibly important to have something within your day-to-day basis which is just for you you know for me that used to be athletics and now it's, it's just physical fitness so whether that's mm. going out for a run in the morning or just going to the to the gym I'm, I'm fortunate that I put a rehabilitation gym in at my house you know very early on in my rehab and so I'll just go to the gym and, and disappear for an hour and that's something that's mine and that no one can take away and you know, the stress from work and daily life doesn't come into that so I've got that period of time which is just for me and I, I think that's quite essential because there are an awful lot of stresses out there. Uh, and then the, the rest of the time it's, it's understanding and recognizing the value that a support network can bring to you. So all the way through this pandemic, and we're we're coming up close to, you know, we're only three weeks short of, of a year of being mm-hmm. in, in more or less isolation. Uh, every single day there's been messages um, from my support mm-hmm. network, you know, a network of friends which we have on one WhatsApp group, which is just banter and mm-hmm. images uh, and, and chat. At the minute, it's filled, filled with Six Nations chat, which I don't really understand because I know nothing about rugby. Um just on a day-to-day basis you've just got those people that reality that connection to to times before and better times that you can um, relate to and reflect with um, as times go forward Um, so I think those have been the the two real lifelines for me obviously I've got my family around me um, Mm. uh, and I'm I'm happy but it's that connection to to the support network and the fact that I've got something within a day that's that's just for me and and generally has remained quite unchanged
0: yeah I I can completely agree with that I think Talking is, you know, talking is absolutely essential, and um, yeah, getting a bit of space for yourself. Um, my daughter's had me out running every day, yes, <laughs> every single evening for the last, well, since the start, since the first of January. And um, I have to admit that if it were not for her, I may have had some days off. <laughs> really, it's kept me going. But you know what? By the time I get, we get home. Um, it's your head is just cleared and you feel refreshed, and yeah, uh, yeah it's been brilliant actually. And in, in, even when it's been freezing cold or raining or anything, so yeah, I completely agree with that. And keeping your network strong and and talking to people, and then on the other side of it, I think reaching out to people and you know checking in on yeah. others as well, isn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely, I'm so sure important.
0: Everyone... Oh, but that's brilliant. Thank you so much, Dave. Thanks for telling your story. It's absolutely inspirational, and and you know. Clearly, you're a role model and a very positive person. And um, we look forward to seeing what your next endeavours will bring. Maybe some more medals in the future.
1: (laughs) We shall see. We shall see.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Jay. Thank you for listening to this episode of my Winning Awards podcast. If you enjoyed it or found it helpful, please share it on Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you have any questions, please head over to craftedbyaugust.com where you can find out more about winning awards and contact me. On the website, you can also take our free awards test, which will identify your award strengths and tell you how likely you are to win. I really hope you've been able to take away some ideas today so that you can go ahead and win awards, have an even bigger impact on the world and achieve your dreams.